People come from all over the world to access cutting-edge care in American hospitals. But today's guest describes a different experience for black Americans, who she says live sicker and die quicker than their white compatriots. She's Linda Villarosa, this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to a Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week we're joined by Linda Villarosa, a literary soul. She's a journalist, novelist, educator, editor, and author. Her new book is Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. She joins us today from Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. Good to be with both of you. You know, you've written uh, a, a devastating account uh, of the impact of racism on the health of America and, and Americans, and black Americans in particular. Uh, what drew you to this, to this subject in the first place? Well, I was, I've always been interested in health and medicine, and I was the health editor of Essence Magazine, which is really my sweet spot. Um, because I was interested in race and health. And there's never been a time in America where black health has been equal to white health um, outcomes or even health outcomes of other people of color. And I was very interested in why. And I, the more I looked at it, I was looking at it from a personal um, sort of lens, thinking, well, if each individual does better, the whole health um, outcomes of all black people will be better, but it didn't work. And I realized also that the black health outcomes being so poor and so disproportionate were hurting the entire nation. So it wasn't just sort of like a black thing. It was an American thing. Well, one of the things that stunned me was that when you when you uh, corrected for uh, socioeconomic uh, considerations, outcomes didn't really improve. It, it was really about racism. Is that accurate? I would say that. Um, poverty and lack of money makes everything worse. And certainly people who are at the intersection of some other marginalization plus poverty, they do worse. But um, even in sometimes, especially with maternal um, health and infant health, when you correct for race and educate, when you correct for education and poverty, it doesn't um, erase the problem. And that's what was surprising. It's hard for people to believe because the longstanding idea is that um, poor people are less healthy, which is often true, but so are black people, even in the absence of poverty. So when, when you began reporting on healthcare issues many years ago, you had a different perspective, obviously, than what you have now. And, and that perspective now is, is your book, which we're gonna get into in a minute. Talk about where you were at the beginning of your journey, as it were, and, and what changed and how you came to where you are today in, in terms of under the skin and its conclusions on racism? Well, I think I was one of those people who just believed that if this poor health was all about poverty. And so when I was at Essence, our idea was sort of 
each one teach one or lift as you climb. So if you just, if everyone just does better, gets educated, just takes care of themselves, does everything right, then the whole health status of the race would change. But that didn't work. It wasn't true entirely. And also I think going to public health school for me, I went to public health school as a journalism fellow in the 90s. And I think that really opened my eyes to a different way of thinking that it wasn't just this sort of um, individual responsibility slash blame, but it was about looking at structural and institutional barriers to good health. So the individual responsibility and blame story, uh, which obviously you do not embrace anymore, that is, <clears throat> excuse me, still held by a lot of people in America, is it not? I mean, that is still sort of the common myth that, you know, the zip code and education level, all of those things alone are responsible for, for the, the inequities in, in health outcomes for people of color and, and African-Americans. Is that true? I mean, I've, I've gone on at length here, but talk about where some people still are in terms of their understanding or in their beliefs. And the first chapter of my book is called Everything I Thought Was Wrong. So I don't want it to make it seem like, oh my gosh, you I've known everything all along. I have had to shift my thinking. The big shift wasn't even that long ago. It came in 2017 when I was researching maternal mortality for a cover story in um, the New York Times Magazine. And what I found out was, and it was shocking. I didn't believe it at first. America is the only country where the number of um, birthing people uh, who die or almost die related to pregnancy and childbirth is rising. Black women or birthing people are three to four times more likely to die or almost die. But the, but the twist on it was that a Black person with a master's degree or more is more likely to die related to pregnancy and childbirth than a white person, woman, with an eighth grade education. So that meant that education wasn't protective. And so if that is was the old lens, it's just educate people more. People highly educated are still having problems related to birth and childbirth, and something's wrong with the way we're looking at this. And if something's wrong with the problem, how we're looking at it, then the solution can never be right. You know, those are staggering statistics. One of the things that, um... And, and they're very contemporary. One of the things that struck me uh, from your scholarship and some other places too, though, is that this is not, uh, the, the, the disparity in outcomes is not a new story. Uh, and in fact, you document some really barbaric practices that where, where principally white physicians and white scientists experimented on uh, African-American populations throughout America's history. Can you tell us a little bit about that history and how it manifests itself today? Well, I'll start with, I got this information doing research for the 1619 Project. My essay was on medicine. And I was very surprised at how bad it was during enslavement, just because I had never looked at that history. Yeah. And the, the ways of sort of experimentation were framed around the idea that black people had very high pain tolerance so that we could tolerate pain that no white person could ever deal with. And that was a way to justify all the cruelties that went along with enslavement. I think I, I studied the through line and took the through line from you know 250 years of slavery to um, present day and was looking at studies that um, asked 
positions to be, so medical students, interns, and residents, about different myths, sort of that black skin was thicker than white skin. Black people had um, more or more or fewer nerve endings, hoops, you know, difference in nerve endings, and also that um, black people could tolerate more pain than white people. And um, something like, uh, you know, 40% of medical students, uh, residents, and interns believed at least one of these myths, which is very dangerous because that means that they're going into their practices um, thinking things that Black people and white people are somehow genetically different. And um, it's interesting because I think about the title of my book, Under the Skin, and that's what it means, that there is something that happens, whether it's belief, whether it's the way we're treated, that goes beyond and it's be, uh, more than skin deep. So Linda, do you have a sense of why those myths, for lack of a better term, persist today in 2022? Well, I think that they haven't been, you know, they're still in medical books sometimes, you know, like there's there, there are medical books and in medical training where some of the myths still exist. One of them is about kidney function. There's an idea that um, black people have different kidney function than white people. And there's a correction, a race correction that still exists. So it corrects. So if like I got my kidney function test not long ago, six months ago, and there was a white reading and a black reading and the black reading was circled for me because of I'm black. And I thought, wait, how do they, they don't know anything about me except my race and I get a different reading. Also lung function, lung testing is there's a race correction. And I was asking a physician about this. It's on the machine, the spirometer, which measures um, you know, uh, lung function. And I said, how, do you, how does that happen physically in the doctor's office? And she said, there's a switch. You push a switch to the other side if you're measuring a black person's lung function versus a white person's lung function. That really bothered me because I'm originally from Colorado, the mile high city. I have excellent lung function because of growing up in that thin air and running track and being an athlete. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm the Serena Williams of lung function. Why would I get the race correction that assumes that my lungs are weaker wow. currently? Wow. You know, I, I want to say this is unbelievable, but it is believable, unfortunately. Historically, were there any people in medicine or even outside of medicine who are pushing back against this saying, wait a second, there's no research that supports this. There's no science that supports this. Why are we, why are we having these beliefs? Why are we having machines with white and black settings? Were there, were there figures historically who were you know, raising their hand and sounding an alarm saying, this is all BS. I can't use the full word obviously, but it's all nonsense. Were there any people? I think it was difficult. Certainly there were people, I mean, I was, I looked into W.E.B. Du Bois. So we think of him sort of as a um, kind of a scholar, a scholarly person, but he was really a social scientist and did really interesting experiments and um, studies in the early 1900s, late 1800s. And he was pushing back against some of these myths and by doing research, sort of shoe leather research, Currently, what's really interesting is it's often medical students who are pushing back against these, um, saying, wait a minute, questioning, why would there be a different lung function or kidney function by race? And, you know, why is this in the medical book that I am, um, you know, learning from? And I think that's exciting that some of the change currently is coming from the ground up. 
and that it's coming from medical students who want to be different kind of doctors, different kind of nurses, different kind of public policy advocates. Linda, one of the uh, one of the really compelling parts of the book is the uh, the stories that you tell of people who were affected. Uh, one of those stories is Simone Landrum. Could you share her story with our audience today? I met Simone in 2017 while working on the story about um, black mothers and babies in America. And she had had a, uh, she had two children. And then the year before I met her, she had had a stillbirth and she almost died. Also, she was hemorrhaging. She thought she was, her water had broken, but it was blood. And so she was rushed to the hospital um, and her baby passed away and she almost died. And working backwards, she had complained to her doctor that she was having all kinds of symptoms that point to um, preeclampsia, which caused the hemorrhage and he ignored her. So she, next time she got pregnant again, this time she got a doula, she got a new doctor, um, she did everything right. I met her. She told me the story of losing the baby before. Um, I interviewed her and then I came back for her birth with the, the doula and I and Simone. I saw her get mistreated so badly. Um, her baby was in distress and um, she was treated in with unkindness, disrespect. And it was especially striking because she had had so much trauma the year before. So she should have been treated with extra special care. Oh. And what I wasn't expecting to see that happen. I had been doing all this sort of scholarly research about um, uh, unequal treatment in black people. So to see her be treated badly by an all white team of medical professionals was surprising, even with me and the doula in the room. So, you know, Jim is absolutely right. One of the great powers of, of your book is the stories of individuals. Another one is Mark McMullen. And, and I'm going to ask you to give a summary of, of that story uh, in a second here. But it involves a mental illness. And, and this is a topic that, that we have explored repeatedly on the show, people living with mental illness and how they're treated differently in many contexts, and including, you know, medical treatment, including incarceration and so forth. Anyway, long way of saying, tell us the story of Mark McMullen because that captures this, this issue brilliantly. I think the big idea of that part of the, of the book is that um, too often black people are not treated, um, sort of treated for mental illness and even substance abuse, but are policed. And that's what happened with Mark. Mark was suffering from bipolar disorder for many, many years. And he and his family, um, his father was a college administrator, his mother was a stay-at-home mom, and they worked so hard to help him. But it was very hard for him throughout his life to get treatment for bipolar disorder. And he started to medicate with um, narcotics, with drugs. And his mother was always afraid that he would have some kind of terrible run-in with the police. And that's exactly what happened. He was medicating his bipolar disorder with um, drugs, he ended up in a high-speed car chase um, with the police in Massachusetts. He crashed his car, it was disabled, the airbag went off and the police shot him. I, it was so surprising, my daughter and I, my daughter helped me with the research because I said, I need you to read over this because it seemed like they murdered him in cold blood when he was incapacitated. And um, it was really surprising. And then um, the Times later did a story about traffic stops and black people and in cars. So even without 
the sort of lens of mental illness, black people, you know, die in sort of those kind of car chases. But to see that happen, and I actually know his family, so it was even more surprising to see that he was killed in cold blood just because he was, you know, he was clearly mentally ill and he needed help and not policing and not certainly being murdered. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Linda Villarosa, author of an important new book, Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. If you haven't read one of her books, you may have read Linda in the New York Times Magazine, where she covers race, inequality, and health. She's also an associate professor at the City University of New York, and you can find her on Twitter at Linda Villarosa, L-I-N-D-A-V-I-L-L-A-R-O-S-A. I, I did not read the Times story about Mark, but I have read many news accounts of similar instances. Talk about the role of the news media in perpetuating some of these myths, because I think there clearly is a role that certain media outlets do play in perpetuating these. You know, it's the, if it bleeds, it leads, you throw it up there and then you move along without even getting into the underlying factors. Talk about that. I think that I taught this class on race and media and I teach it, a, you know, most of my students are people of color. And it was really interesting because I was telling them about this. I was showing how the crack epidemic of the 80s was portrayed compared to the opioid epidemic now, which mainly, you know, the crack epidemic is mostly black people in the past and the opioid epidemic is mostly white people. So the crack epidemic showed people looking terrible, looking dangerous, looking scary, that needed policing, and all of, all of it was about, we've got to crack down on this. There's a war on drugs. The opioid epidemic is we have to treat people, we have to help them, they need help, they need sort of rehab and treatment. And that, you know, that alone, and just showing the different, we showed, I showed them clips from news clips of, you know, these really sweet people who were dealing with opioid epidemic, three young white women, compared to black folks who looked dangerous and scary. And it was like, we've got to crack down on this when they too needed treatment and care. Linda, the uh, Supreme Court uh, overturned Roe v. Wade earlier this summer. Uh, do you have a sense of how that's gonna affect communities of color? Well, I think it's it's telling that the 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 case happened in Mississippi. Mississippi is the poorest state. It's also the state with the highest percentage of um, black citizens. It's the state with an extremely high maternal mortality. It has extremely high infant mortality. And then even when children are, you know, make it, then um, child poverty and child death are very high in that very poor state. So that is where the last reproductive health, you know, <laughs> clinic 
um, that did abortions, you know, that was at the center of this. And I think what I think about it is think about it through a reproductive justice lens. So reproductive justice is a black led movement, which only asks for three things. One, that a, that a person has a right to have a baby. Two, a person has a right to not have a baby. And three, if someone chooses to have a child, then that child is should be raised in a safe and healthy environment. This looks beyond this is, issue of reproductive justice um, as being about abortion only, because especially for Black people, it's way beyond that. And where Mississippi goes, that is where Black America goes, and that is where ultimately America goes. So you use the term reproductive justice. Many years ago, I read a book which left a lasting imprint on my understanding of, of America, and that was the sterilization of Carrie Buck. I'm sure you're familiar with that. And that was the case of, of a white woman who was deemed, um, at that point, the term was retarded, and she was sterilized against her will, and, and she did not have mental uh, any mental condition. But Mary Alice and Minnie Lee Ralph are in your book, and it's a similar story, and it's a horrifying one. Talk about that. Again, when I got to that passage, I, I thought back to Carrie Buck, and I just went, wow, some things have not changed. And tell us about those, those two women. Well, I think I'll just go back a little to say eugenics in America, when it first started, it was most and it was poor, mostly white men in the South. Then as the operations became more sophisticated, it switched to women. And it was women who were institutionalized like Carrie Buck. Then the next round of it was um, black women and other women of color in the South. When uh, sort of they became too expensive. So when the great migration happened and many black people were coming into cities, um, like Montgomery, Alabama, where the Ralphs were in the 70s, that was when um, the government itself started using sterilization as a form of economic and population control. And that's what happened to the Ralph sisters who were 12 and 14 in 1973. Their parents were living in public housing. They were going to public schools um, and they were targeted by the public health service for sterilization. They were taken away without, their parents couldn't read and write. They were taken away without their parents' consent, or you know, they, the parents or the parents didn't even know. They were taken to a hospital and sterilized against their will. The good part of that story is that their, the social worker that was helping them was so horrified that she found the Southern Poverty Law Center, which Julian Bond was the head of the board, and um, there was a case, and they sued um, to get justice for the Ralph family, and they won the case. But unfortunately for the Ralph sisters, they're, you know, the Ralph family, six children, two, the two daughters who were sterilized, um, they never got they never got any money for it. And, and they never got an official apology. I was really happy that my story um, got excerpted by the New York Times Magazine. And um, there was um, some really generous people that gave the Ralph sisters uh, some money. And just to, they still live in public housing. They're in their 60s. They live together. They were sort of in obscurity. They're my friends now. I know that they're doing a little bit better, but I still am angry that they've never gotten an official apology from our government either at any level. So you got to know them well. They became your friends, as, as you just said. Tell us about them. How, how do they feel about all this now, all these many years later, 
knowing what was taken from them, something so big and, and never replaceable? I think when I came in their lives, they also didn't know that they made they changed history because their case also uncovered that hundreds of thousands of Southern women, mostly black women, were had been sterilized around, you know, around in the same time period as them. And so I was trying to explain to them, you you've changed history. You're really important. You're in the history books. Um, and they couldn't quite get it. I think they also are really sad. They talk about, they wanted to have children there, you know, especially the one that, you know, one of them is developmentally disabled quite severely. The other one really talked to me about, she always wanted to have children. She has nieces and nephews who she really loves. And I, I see them tear up. I see them get sad, you know, when talking about it, but they're also so kind and so nice and so humble that I'm really glad that I got to know them. Linda, did, did this history affect the, the uh, Black Americans community, the Black America's uh, response to uh, the public health initiatives around COVID? Well, I think what happened around COVID is um, when the numbers start, when COVID started happening in you know February, March, 2020, there, was, there weren't racial statistics. So everyone sort of under the radar who had studied other viruses like HIV AIDS and who were in public health started saying, this is gonna affect black people much more. It's gonna affect people of color much more. But should we say anything? Should There's no statistics um, nationally yet. Should we say anything? Because we'll be blamed for this. And it was interesting, when the statistics came out, it was very clear that it was affecting um, black people especially. So we had higher hospitalization rates and higher death rates. And then um, interestingly, not long after we started being blamed. So there were people who were mad about the lockdown, who were protesting and saying, wait, this is a, a black problem, or this is a problem of people of color. Why do we have to not go to work? Why do we have to be shut into our homes? And it was interesting too, that also people avoided, it seemed like black people were avoiding testing. Then when you looked a little bit closer into it, often testing wasn't available in communities of color. So it wasn't all avoidance. Same with the vaccine. When the vaccine came out, there was this worry that black folks would be um, he hesitant, I guess, or avoidant of the vaccine. And certainly that happened. But at the beginning, it also wasn't as readily available in communities of color. So I think it's not all about um, vaccine hesitancy or medical avoidance. But on the other hand, I try to think about it historically. It's not shocking that we would be afraid of the medical system, not necessarily because of the Tuskegee experiment only, not because of eugenics and what happened with the RELPS, but what happened to someone in the health system yesterday? What happened to you in the health system yesterday? Because that kind of unequal treatment still happens. Linda, we've got uh, literally about 15 seconds here is there hope that we can finally slay some of this? I believe that we are undergoing a change and I'm really um, cheered up by those medical students who are trying to make a difference by health um, commissions, state health commissions that are trying to make a difference and change the way they operate. So I think this is a good time right now and it's you know coming off the heels of a pandemic, but it's also a time when we have a choice to make a change and to do things differently and to go into a better future. 
Well, your book is an important step in that direction. It is Under the Skin. Linda Villarosa, thank you so much for being with us. That is all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about storing the public square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org, where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.